We are live, back in full effect um, on the campus of Wiley College, but this is the Higher Education Leadership Foundation's Four Thoughts of Our Founders podcast. Um, I am Herman Felton, uh, one of the founders, uh, and as usual, I am uh, flying uh, with my co-pilot, uh, Brother Greg Dees. What's going on, Greg? Greg is in the building. Um, Today will be interesting. Um, We're going to have several conversations, have several people stop by, have a few different uh, topics, conversations. But a lot has been going on in the news, um, in the airwaves, and in our sacred space. Um, And uh, sacred space, uh, to those who may be new to uh, the podcast, I affectionately refer to the black college space as the sacred trust and the sacred space. So um, a lot has been going on. Um, it uh, On every turn, you see uh, articles that uh, want to hypothesize about our existence, um, the worth of the institutions, um, uh, the worth of the students that are leaving the institutions. And invariably, um, every now and then, you find an article that makes sense, that has some relevance, Uh, be it cultural, um, fiscally, um, educationally, uh, but, you know, a lot of times it's hyperbole, in my honest opinion. Um, Oftentimes we have folks who are void of the space and have no idea what um, the sacred sauce or the secret sauce feels like. Um, And their perspective is um, a little different and and one would argue that they bring value because they're fresh Um, um, and um, and so they they write on things which um, we'll we'll talk about today. There are two articles in particular, one uh, that was written by um, a young lady who wrote for. I think it appeared in the New York Times. It's been a couple of different places. Uh, her name is uh, Delise uh, Smith Barrow. And um, it's found um, in uh, some some areas in this one particular um, paper, um, the I think it's the Hetchinger um Hetchinger report. Um, it's a national nonprofit newsroom that reports uh, on one topic, education, education alone. And in this particular space, uh, race and equity, uh, she wrote an article entitled Many HBCUs are tethering between surviving and thriving. Um, and, um, you know, sort of comes at it from this space, uh, talking or giving reverence to the fact that our institutions are storied schools, which they are. Um, that's a fact, and that we are responsible for creating the black middle class, that's a fact. Uh, But she also posits that we're on the brink of financial ruin. Um, And she begins her conversation by citing data. Data that has been regurgitated over and over uh, ad nauseum. Um, And I think um, it's most of it is data that we've all known for a very long time but the broader populace did not want to accept it until a report was done um, by a major um, research um, company. Um, And this report uh, talked about 
uh, did a study where it juxtaposed um, a couple thousand African-Americans who attended HBCUs and a couple thousand who attended um, PWIs. And it asked a variety of different questions uh, and to distill down a ton of information, it essentially said something that we all knew for a very long time, uh, but because we didn't have the microphone or because ice water is colder, depending upon who pours it, um, it said to the world that HBCU graduates make more money than graduates uh, who are black that graduate from PWIs, that we are uh, more prepared uh, to compete uh, in the workforce when leaving uh, our institutions, that we are happier, that we are more civically engaged. Um, this is a report that was done by um, a major um, um, research company. She cites some of that information. I'll get, get you the name. I, I'm not about pubbing folks. So I'll say that really quickly at the end of the podcast. Um, and, but she talks about that. And then she goes on to talk about since 1997, 15 of our schools have closed. Um, she also talks about how we, um, have, while we're only 3% of uh, the colleges and universities in the nation, 27% uh, of the STEM folks uh, graduated from HBCUs and HBCUs have trained roughly 50% of black teachers, right? 80% uh, of the judges are uh, from HBCUs, the black, black folks, uh, and 50% of doctors who are black graduated from HBCUs. She also cites that one of the reasons why we're on the brink of disaster um, are the rising college costs. Um, I think that is a fact. Um, no two ways about it. Everywhere you look, uh, it is costing bands and stacks of bands to, to go to college. Uh, what, what else do y'all call thousands of dollars, Greg? Racks. Racks. <laughs> so we went from bands to stacks to racks. Maybe we'll get the tracks one day. I don't know. Packs. Does it have to rhyme with? Okay, I'm sorry. I digress. Let me keep moving. Um, but it essentially talks about um, when you have this perfect storm of rising um, institutional cost, uh, which is passed on to the student, and a um, decreasing in the federal budgets, how that creates um, a perfect storm. And it uh, what further makes it a perfect storm is that 70% of um, well, three out of five students nationally at HBCUs are Pell eligible. But if you look at private HBCUs like ours, you're going to be an 85 to 95 percentile of not being Pell eligible, but Pell dependent. There, there's a quantifiable difference uh, in the two. Pell dependent um, is where most of us really, uh, you know, hang out at. Um, and their first generation. So a variety of different issues come with that. And yet, um, yet uh, we still find ways to do. She also talked about the marquee schools, uh, which you can imagine which those are uh, that have large endowments. Um, but th the vast majority of our institutions have endowments under $50 million. Out of the 100 or so, um, that's where it is, um, and that's a reality. And yet, and yet, and yet, 
we still produce folks who go out and compete, who are happier, who are more civically engaged, who um, are astute in um, the politics of corporate uh, America um, and, and produce in ways that uh, make our institutions proud. How does that happen? Uh, it, it's a special sauce, and we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, she also talks about um, how our institutions have re reversed in some ways. The growth has reversed in some ways. Um, our institutions are having challenges, and there will always be challenges because nowadays students are looking for uh, different things. And I don't think each generation is... Um, you know, better than the other, neither are better than the other. I think things change, desires change, uh, and the students change. And we have a different type of student that we're educating now. And some could argue that they're smarter and they are um, more in tuned with debt and what it costs and more conscientious. And I think we have to reframe this whole narrative about debt versus investment. You're making an investment in yourself anytime you go to an educational enterprise and say, here's my money and I want a skill set. I think we have to reframe the narrative to get people to understand that this is merely an investment that you're making in yourself. And some of us will make more of an investment um, than others. But at the end of the day, if we can get people to understand that it yes you encumber debt but it is inherently an investment that you're making in yourself um, so that has to happen but our students are more cognizant of the type of debt that they make she goes on to talk about folks losing their accreditation and all these different things right um, and you know for me I, I don't know that this conversation is any different uh, than the ones that we've seen from from forever. There were two professors who attended Harvard back in the 70s that were asking the same dumb question that folks are asking, and some are even dumber to answer nowadays, what's the relevancy of HBCUs, right? Me personally, I'm not, I, I won't even dignify a person with a response to that question. I mean, you all you gotta do is Google. Um, and I'm not going to do that research for you. It is um, we, we the work that we do speaks for itself. There are challenges at our institution. Yes. Do you throw all of us away because uh, some of us have alums who don't give because some of us have uh, not the type of management uh, or lack uh, the capacity to maintenance the deferred maintenance on our campus, rather service that the deferred maintenance on our campus, our buildings are 100 years old, you know, in some cases, 150, some cases, 60, 70 years old. Uh, and they're big buildings with large HVAC, HVAC uh, units and technology needs to be updated. And all those things cost a lot of money. We're not in the early 80s and 90s where you could find. Um, and I know this as a fundraiser. While I wasn't practicing then, a student of fundraising, it was uh, fairly commonplace to get uh, grants for brick and mortar. Nowadays, at private institutions, you're not getting uh, resources for brick and mortar um, or infrastructure improvements. 
that has to come out of your operating uh, expenses, your um, your general operating fund, and your general operating fund typically is um, um, buttressed by enrollment, right? So if you don't have enrollment, um, then you're going to have challenges keeping up with aging and decaying buildings and uh, the capacity to um, make sure that your technology is on point and that you can service uh, the students who are coming. She's also talking about, um, you know, schools having to have three funding streams, um, public resources, uh, grants, federal, state, and local appropriations, um, and private investment, right? Well, we know what's happening. Some states declare uh, war on higher education. Um, some states declare war on public education, whether it be K-12 or not. Uh, and if you are private, you are certainly not even in the conversation for public uh, funding. So um, she's also talking about some of the institutions who are suing. And there are three to, to date or three states that have sued. That'll be in another podcast, but we're going to talk about uh, the state of Alabama, the state of Mississippi, and the state of Maryland having only two of the three really, um, really prevail. Um, arguably, Mississippi was most um, successful in making their, their case about equitable funding. Uh, and we will, as I said, we'll discuss uh, the other two uh, in a podcast a little later. Um, but she's talking about a lot of different things and even talking about the Democratic hopefuls who um, are throwing around these figures. And, and my question, there's a, there's a brother on Instagram, Jarrell Quinn, who had this little skit or monologue um, that really dealt with one question, and that was, who going to pay for that? Right. That's how he said it. He'd, um, you know, go through different scenarios and talk about, um, you know, it's fine, but who going to pay for that? Right. And so these these candidates are talking about 800 million here, this, that and the other. But no one's talking about who's going to pay for that and how does that happen? And more importantly, for me, who I'm laboring in the private vineyards, um, what does that look like for the private HBCUs? Is that just for public? Um, so there's a lot as to be expected at this time in the race where you're out. Um, people are throwing out things and saying things, but she's mentioning this. Um, at the end of the day, she, she says that the harsh reality is that time may be running out for dozens of HBCUs if the federal government doesn't issue a rescue mission in the, in the coming decade. It's a tragic extinction um, that we should prepare for. Now, I don't know this lady's background. I don't know her. Um, I don't know what she does for a living. I do, I have read that she's attended um, or is a 2017 Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. I think that might be a big deal. I don't know. Um, but uh, it is quite interesting to me how in many cases, um, people on the peripheral of our institutions um, know more about it than the people who are in the trenches. Fascinating to me. It's also fascinating how we give agency to people outside. You're a researcher, you do your research, you should be commended for doing research. That's great. But if you're a researcher talking about institutions like Cheney 
and um, Lincoln and Wilberforce should just give up, which is what a researcher who is lauded by our space and others um, who now holds a very distinguished chair is on record for saying that institutions she doesn't think is going to make it. Well, she doesn't have the agency to really tell and others like her don't, I would submit, don't have the agency to really tell what grit, resiliency and tenacity is and how it hits a little different at HBCUs. We have ancestors in the clouds that are whispering to us. We have folks grace that is just permeating through um, even through the fault of ours, the hardships that we find at our institution. God has found ways to make things happen. Now, I'm not one of the um, people who just wants to sit back and wait for grace. I believe that you do the work um, and that um, grace uh, is is gravy. Right. Um, but I also know that we have a tenacity, again, a resilience um, and this fortitude that is unquantifiable. And so I just find it always peculiar when people count us out uh, and we show up and show out. Um, so at the end of the day, she is right. Uh, we are um, in a space and place where we uh, on the brink of surviving and thriving. There's a fine line with both of those. And if you're surviving, I don't know that that makes you bad. Um, if you're thriving, I don't know that that makes you great. Um, it may make things a little more comfortable, but, but it, it doesn't delineate um, the value of either of those. And because we are a group that started 100 years behind the Kings and Queens colleges, the first 10, uh, because we are a, a group that was marginalized um, and uh, every attempt was thwarted because we are a group who were not able to because we were founded out of the ugly bastions of racism and oppression because we are a group who has done nothing but um, be resilient. Um, if you don't understand that, if you don't have that context, I think it's very difficult for you to understand that some of us are comfortable, um, probably too but some of us are comfortable in just surviving. And what pushes us is the fact that we look at the black and browns to marginalize on our campuses. And we see that every day there's a reason for us to get up and sign our work with the mark of excellence every day. And that translates to 50% of the, the doctors being um, black and HBCU educated. That translates to 80% of the judges being black and HBCU educated. That translates to us being only 3% of the populace out of the 3,900 uh, schools in higher education and producing 27% of STEM. That type of excellence is why we exist. I would also, in closing, as I wrap this up, ask Ms. Barrow, um, how many white schools have closed since 1997? How many of those are struggling or on the cusp of surviving and thriving and seek a preordained destiny with financial ruin? My point is, is why is one space 
news and the other isn't. We never talk about all the white colleges that are dying annually. And if you are a researcher, go look it up. Go to Saks, go to HLC, go to Middle States, go to Tracks. The evidence is there, right? But we find ourselves in a place where it is convenient and comfortable for folks to throw darts at what we do. And we should be comfortable with that. And we should recognize that it is what it is. It's not going anywhere. And if we can get the people who toil in the vineyards at our HBCUs to understand that, if we can translate that trend, that, that, that understanding down to our students, then we will do what my, one of my mentors would say, we would run faster because we know that we're in a race and we're behind. We start from behind. And if we understand that the goal line, the goal post, the hoop, and all that moves when we're not in charge of it, then it puts us in a space that allows us to levitate in greatness. The last thing I want to talk about is this conversation about HBCU black parents saddled with the risky college debt, student debt because of parent plus loan. So risky college debt is only risky for black parents and HBCUs or is college debt risky for everybody, right? Again, we find ourselves with Kimberly Jen and I can't even pronounce this name. It looks like a Middle Eastern name, but it was in uh, the USA Today uh, education space. And it was ran on October 27th originally, and there was an update October 28th, uh, but you should be able to find this. But it's peculiar to me why this title, and I get how the media works, it's about clickbait, right? And so if you say HBCU, black parents saddled with risky college student debt because of parent plus loan, well, isn't everybody subjected to the riskiness of the college debt? My question would be, why does it lead with HBCU? At the end of the day, for me, I read this article and it, again, it was the same thing. Um, but this talked about how Parent PLUS loans are hurting HBCU families. Um, but I think what we have to do is really look at when Parent PLUS loans became a challenge for HBCUs. And it was under the Obama administration where the policy shifted and the policy changed. And some policy wonk decided that in order for a person to get um, a Parent PLUS loan, they had to have excellent credit. Right. And um, and 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 so the standards for getting Parent PLUS loan went from having good fair to good credit meant that you now had to have excellent credit. And it hurt a lot of families and not just HBCUs. Um, I would submit to you that there were more uh, non HBCU students and parents that were impacted by this and more PWIs that were impacted by this as well. But it talked about our situation because um, our uh, percentage of black students shared the national student body uh, as a whole was 12%. So black families, uh, it was 12%. It's, they talked about for white families, barring parent, 
parent plus loans can be uh, more of a financial strategy. So again, here we, <laughs> they're brilliant for using it and we can't necessarily be brilliant when, when we're utilizing it. And uh, more than 60% of white borrowers have annual household incomes of above 75,000. Uh, and this, they're the people, they say, that this program was originally designed for, middle-class families, and they are more capable of paying off loans in the future. Well, I think you'd be hard-pressed to look at a family of nine from the 60s who um, dad was a sanitation worker and mom was a domestic and everybody went to college, right? <laughs> there are many... Um, folks who were not in the middle class who made a way and they paid their debts. For me, this conversation, and again, I am, I'm on some different stuff. Like I, I might be hypersensitive uh, and I think it's because of all the things that I see, all the data that I see, all the conversations that I'm a part of and all the things that are impacting um, higher education and the space that I work in. Uh, and I have to tell you that uh, it's real. The, the marginalization that occurs, unbeknownst to people who marginalize us, happens daily. And the inference that white people are the only people that are making above $75,000 uh, and they are the only folks who strategize and use Parent PLUS loans, to me, is inherently and patently racist, period. I mean, for me, I think that's a broad brush. I don't think that you um, look at information and suggest that uh, the only people, as they said, for white folks, barring parent plus loans is more of a financial strategy uh, to move money around. Yes, we don't have assets the way folks, um, the others do, um, but we have like $3 billion uh, economic spending power um, annually, black folks do, right? So we have cash. We may not be trusting ba uh, banks. <laughs> we, may, we may not put money up in stock markets. We might have money in pillows. I, I don't know what the case is, but what I do know is that there are folks who have agency to pay their loans back. Uh, and there are folks who are making ends meet um, that they're doing more with less. And that's inherently, I think, analogous to what HBCUs do. We do more with less. Um, so um, again, this article goes on to talk about everything from um, you know, student loans to debt uh, being high, uh, which we're dealing with here at, at Wiley College. We decided to um, decrease uh, the amount of attendance here by almost $4,000. Um, but they also wanna talk about some way or another, uh, bring in uh, Donald Trump and what he has done um, and, um, you know, they cite that the president has been supportive, um, but he has, uh, trust issues to overcome. Uh, and they also cite that loans were forgiven by Katrina, the Katrina schools. Um, there are four schools in the state of New Orleans that received, um, loan forgiveness, which was impactful, major, majorly impactful. They were first um, in forbearance, which was good. And later, um, they were forgiven almost to the tune of $500 million, somewhere around in there. Um, 
at the end of the day, uh, these two articles to me are a microcosm of uh, regurgitated information um, where people talk about the same thing, but it's a different set of researchers saying uh, essentially the same thing. And again, for me, um, it really is, is how do we stack up with our counterparts, right? How do we stack up with other small private uh, liberal arts institutions or institutions that are funded uh, at the level in which our institutions are? Um, we're suing states um, because they're duplicating programs, trying to force us out, and they're funding us at levels that don't allow us to, to compete. And we're still grinding. We're still producing. You know, so at the end of the day, uh, in sharing with you uh, these two things, uh, the point is, is that we have to be vigilant that there is one, only one standard that should permeate across all of our campuses. Um, we don't compete against each other. We are brother and sister institutions. Now, we might compete against each other on, you know, the football field, and we talk about bands, and we talk about homecomings. Um, but we are brother and sister institutions because we know at the end of the day, uh, we're HBCUs and we're all clumped together. And we will go as far, as only as far, uh, as the weakest link. Um, and when one of our institutions are in trouble, all of us are in trouble. Case in point, um, Bennett University, Bennett College, you saw what the nation did. Uh, there were folks who were in the space, outside the space, um, that, that rallied around our institutions because they are historic gems. And they serve a populace that I would submit to you would not be able to go uh, to other institutions, not because of merit, uh, but because uh, when we send students to PWIs, we're asking 18 and 19 year olds to manage a lot of different things. One, we want them to be great scholars, uh, but two, while they're still maturing, uh, we're asking them to deal with uh, vestiges of racism um, and uncomfortable scenarios that their minds are developing and uh, to deal with those things, um, it, what we're seeing at HBCUs is the return, um, uh, the return home, simply because of what people are dealing with at those institutions. All that to say that um, we will be great, we will be excellent, we will not strike out, um, you know, cry out loud against anyone. We will keep our heads down and do our work and continue to do the things that have made us excellent. Um, there were a couple of questions uh, that I posed. Uh, one was, um, what's the correlation between um, professional development and recruitment? And my man, Jeffrey Pierce, who is a health fellow, um, who was formerly at um, Houston Tillerson and Edward Waters College, um, is in the customer service business. And he makes a very strong correlation between customer service and recruitment. And at the end of the day, uh, we all know that customer service uh, can drive anybody away from any product. Poor customer service. Um, I think what we have to do at our institutions is get people to realize that they have careers and not jobs. And I will show you the difference in work product any day of the week. It will be quantifiably and qualitatively different if a person views their vocation as a career 
as opposed to a job. That person who sees their vocation as a career will do things that delineate themselves from those who are just punching the clock to get a job. At the end of the day, there's a strong correlation, Jeffrey, between recruitment and customer service. And it starts, I would submit, at the recruiting booth and on the website. If your institutions have not been intentional about giving people a bird's eye view uh, of your institution from that first contact, be it human interaction or through a portal, a web portal, um, then you lose some things. And what? let me give you an example of what that looks like. If you have a website where some of the links don't work, if you have a website where the material is not accessible, if you have a website where um, individuals can't navigate it fairly easily, um, I think that lines up with probably poor customer service. You have a customer who's looking for some information, they can't find it. That's where we're at. Um, recruitment, first interaction. Recruiters are not crisp, not sharp, not talking about um, the wonderful offerings if they don't exude um, um, the confidence, um, the esprit de corps that the institution embodies. Um, that's bad. If you have poor customer service on campus, the administrative assistants don't like each other. And so we have silos and we have problems that trickles down to students. And I also believe that students model the behaviors of the adults on the campus. If your cabinet um, does not uh, work in collegiality, um, then you have a problem. Um, customer service uh, impacts every facet of the institution and I think uh, makes a very strong correlation. The last question I'm gonna deal with before we get out of here is this damn Popeye's uh, sandwich. Somebody asked me, <laughs> what is going on with this Popeye's sandwich? Well, I don't know. I have not uh, went to Popeye's to get a sandwich. Uh, I do know that the sandwich over at that Chick-fil-A, uh, or as I like to call them, how may I serve you uh, restaurant, um, is on and popping. I just have not been able to get over, because one, I'm not standing in a line or waiting in a line for a sandwich. I'm not doing that. Number two, I'm not too crazy about Popeye's in the first place. I like chicken. I like the way my mom cooks fried chicken and everybody else is a distant second to that. But there is some national debate about this damn sandwich. And um, I thought it fascinating that this would be one of the questions uh, as I solicited questions and topics uh, to discuss that this would be a, a topic. And I was having conversations with a colleague um, who was flat out uh, disgusted with how we are going crazy about a sandwich. And I think I saw somewhere on social media, uh, someone lined up two memes or what, well, there was a response to Ja Rule's uh, comment about how black folk are act, acting about a chicken sandwich. I think that's a little too, a uh, little too much. Uh, but I thought the Dave Chappelle response uh, was on point when they said nobody gives a bleep about what Ja Rule is saying right now. And that would be quantifiable uh, by the amount of folk who are standing in line. So I think at the end of the day, we have to say that the sandwich at Popeye's is at least worthy 
of the national attention that it is getting because people were waiting for the sandwich to come back. Um, but there's something about the consistency and there's something about how may I serve you um, and my pleasure to serve you. Um, as some about that, 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 that consistent sandwich um, at Chick-fil-A. So maybe one day I'll try the sandwich. Um, I'm not a fan of mayonnaise sauce and all that good stuff. So I have to get mine without it, but, um, I'll come back on uh, one of the podcasts uh, a little later, uh, and maybe never, uh, and tell you what uh, my thoughts are about uh, it. But, um, to the sister who posed the question, I think it's a valid question because it's a national um, it's a national story and it's trending. And, but I just wish that there would be some way, and here I am, my soapbox for HBCUs, if I could find a way to um, you know, kind of get that excitement about our institutions year-round and not just homecoming. Um, but that's all for me now. That's uh, the end of our uh, episode today, uh, a rambling session, if you will, about my take on a couple of, uh, couple of trending topics in the space and um look forward to the next time also always as always i want to plug the higher education leadership foundation and our uh, kappa cohort that will be held on the campus of wiley college december 12th through the 15th we're excited about the 30 individuals who are coming the 15 hbcu presidents and the host of other uh, professionals who will be here to share with them uh, to share case studies and empirical data about leadership uh, and to just watch another cohort bond. Um, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but there's something about that Greek letter, um, that, that, that Kappa uh, alphabet is just uh, something powerful. So I think I might just stop here and stop short of saying that it is going to be the best because the iconic iota and mo beta theta and greater Ada uh, might have a problem with me. Um, but at the end of the day, we're excited for all of our fellows uh, and excited about uh, the next Institute. So again, thank you for listening to four thoughts of our founders. I wish you love, wish you well, and I wish you peace.